Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Shadok. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Bonnie Badenoch. This episode is part two in a two-part series with Bonnie, so be sure to check out our website if you missed part one. And now your host, Karen Doyle-Buckwalter. All right, so I'm familiar with a term that I think has been so important the word neuroception and I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit just kind of how you see that relating to our work oh I think it's so important to understand how sensitive we humans are Um, Steve coined that word neuroception to to have a contrast with the word perception which is a conscious awareness neuroception is that our our whole embodied brain our nervous system is very sensitive to whether we are whether we are safe or not and so neuroception is about how we know in our bodies before there's any conscious awareness at all if we are if we're safe meaning emotionally psychologically safe with another person which has everything to do with feeling received by that person feeling as though they are attending to us without their own agenda i know sometimes somebody's talking i can start to think of my answer before they're finished and the, ner- the nervous system will sense that's happening and it will increase the danger level because I'm no longer truly present to the person. The psychological safety is about being present and attentive and following and responding within that kind of framework. So the sensitivity of our systems to the presence of others is, is remarkable. And I, he, he will, Steve will say, even if somebody, if we're listening to each other and somebody even shifts their shoulders a little bit as though they're going to turn away, there's an alarm that goes off in the nervous system. Like, are you going to leave me? Uh-huh. So building our capacity to be truly present with people to me is the most centrally important thing in our work in regard to how we as therapists care for ourselves or as parents, how we attend with our children, our spouses, and even, even the teller at the bank. I know I go to that, but I, you know, I see, see the same tellers when I go to my bank fairly often and we have a relationship with each other. And if either one of us is preoccupied, the other notices in some way. I mean, it's, it happens at every level of relationship, you know, from the most casual to the most, the most close, but of course, those that are really close, we're even more sensitive yeah. to the comings and goings. And but this idea of safety and then dropping away from safety, because once we drop away from safety and we get sympathetically activated, we can't be connected to each other anymore in a way that is that has that gentling, healing kind of effect. Well, and it seems that 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 really speaks to like you're saying the therapist or the helper of any kind and um, how they're taking care of themselves in order to be fully present and fully available and, and be um, that, that presence that people are needing for healing. We have to think about that, don't we? Well, I, and I think we have to think about not so much self-care, but who do we have in our lives that has our back that listens to us that way? Because we develop our capacity to be present in that way most 
easily, most uh, naturally, I guess I would say, by others being that way with us. That's what builds that circuitry to have that capacity. So I am just such an advocate for, for, for people having groups of true listening around them, you know, where people have an opportunity regularly to share, not just about what's going on with clients, but certainly that, but what's going on in life and to feel truly heard. It keeps us balanced and nourished. And it again, builds the actual, actual neural equipment to be able to offer that to others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how, when you say that in groups and other places, how do you see some people doing that? Or how, how do you yourself do that? Or what, what do you see as practical ways to do that? Right. Well, it's lovely if you happen to have a partner in life who does that well, and I do mm-hmm. so that wonderful experience. But we also, in, uh, in Vancouver, Washington, where I am, we have a, a, a group that meets once a month, and we come together, and over, we've been meeting for 10 years with lots of people coming and going over that time, but there is a, a kind of a culture of listening in that group, that when people come in, they just feel warmed and at home and kind of settle into vulnerability. And then I have two or three friends also that I know I can reliably count on to really be able to do that. If I say I just need just needed some listening, that they will be able to do that. So I think we have to look around and, you know, be find those people. We don't have to have lots of them, but find those that we can that reliably also have that skill or want to develop that skill together. I mean, it's a skill, but it's also a state of mind. And it comes from a kind of inner safety in ourselves. So it isn't something you can fake or do, develop as a protocol or just call it only a skill, but it's actually a state of being, too, of that openness and mm-hmm. ability to others. So I think we have to make it a priority to look around. But when I do consultations, I hear so often I'll say, so who has your back? And they say, well, really nobody. Mm-hmm. And it's just, oh, it's so hard to do this work if we don't have others to help us hold what it is that comes to us in the course of this work. It's so true. You know, I've been um, doing some work in leading circles and the circle way. And, um, you know, one of the agreements in circle is to speak with intention and listen with attention and just that is pretty profound thing to be trying to practice in the group so yeah I I really appreciate you pointing that out because I think so often we're like you said we're thinking about self-care we're thinking about am I exercising you know am I doing whatever taking a bubble bath but there's other things and and these things are important that you're pointing out so I'm glad for that reminder we go back to Porges, where he says, again, that connection is a biological imperative. So the most natural way to be cared for is through connection with others. The other is just harder work. It isn't that a bubble bath or a walk isn't a good thing. Or relating to nature is a lovely thing and all of that. But also these human connections are what's built into our nervous system as a requirement for, for a life that's, that's full and rich and constantly kind of on a healing track, you know? Yes, yes. So, so important. Another thing I wanted to get your thoughts about is this idea of, and it obviously ties into this whole conversation, but implicit versus explicit memory and how we need to understand that in ourselves and as therapists. And, you know, I think about just to tack on to that, I, I shared before 
with you that I love how you talk about instead of saying that triggered me or you're triggered or whatever to say touched and awakened. I'd love if you could speak about that a little bit. I think it's a beautiful way to speak of it. Well, I thank you. And I, 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 it has proven to be quite helpful for myself and also for others. The idea of of language being so important really is, I, I was a literature major forever up through, up through a doctorate, all but dissertation and then switched directions but but I have had sensitivity to language all my life just because of that and I was a big reader as a kid so language has always meant a lot to me and then I was reading Ian McGilchrist the master and his emissary talking about the two hemispheres of the brain and he speaks extensively about the importance of the language we use touching other people and activating their inner world accordingly so I started to really listen to some of the words that we use in our in our work Mm -hmm. of them of course that we hear every day is trigger which is a violent word and it's especially a violent word and and now in in the way that we have such a gun culture yes violence to it and that that inner so it can feel then like our implicit our embodied implicit memories are jumping on us with violence or we'll say we're hijacked by them or people will say implicit swamp kind of thing you know all of these ways of seeing it is so negative well, I began to realize I don't think of implicit memory that way. We, we hold implicit memories in our bodies from trauma in a way that they're available to us so that when they come up, when they become activated again, that's when they're open for healing. So the intention of them coming up is to look and see if they're help now. That's, that's my way of thinking about it. So rather than being a negative thing, it's a positive experience and i think what happens with our implicit memories that that live in our bodies but stay below conscious awareness quite a bit of the time what happens with them is they literally get touched and awakened by something either internally or externally happening i may think about something that wakes something up in me or some i may see somebody who looks similar to someone who was painful for me or a song or a smell it can be anything but it begins to wake up inside and as it comes up if i'm with someone who can truly be with me the possibility of that experience being held in a way that its felt sense changes forever is alive in that moment so it's really kind of a sacred moment when these things come to us. They can feel terrible, but if we meet them differently, they respond differently. So a few of my, my colleagues decided to try changing language with their clients and speak of it this way and explain why, you know, and all of that. And what they have found and what I have found is when we meet those memories that way, they come up less violently over time. I think they feel received, that part of ourselves that's awakening inside feels received instead of rejected or blamed or criticized. Mm-hmm. And so the way that they begin to come more gently and have more availability for healing. It's been quite a remarkable experience over the last couple of years as a few of us have, have consciously really experimented with this and seen much less dysregulation when these, when these memories come up and they're met that way even to the point eventually maybe of feeling grateful for their arrival. Like, oh, you're here. May I, can I hold you? Can I be with you? You can imagine how differently there's going to be a response inside than there is when there's fear and rejection. Mm -hmm. Yes. And because it's, it's almost shaming to think of it as triggering, you know, as though this shouldn't be happening as opposed to what you're saying is 
this is an opportunity. Um, and it reminds me of this idea that Bessel um, van der Kolk and I think some others talk about that trauma is not really about the event, but if you have someone to run home to. You know, and so I see that is kind of a bit of what you're saying that don't, don't think, oh no, this shouldn't come up, that it's an opportunity to share it in, and have somebody there with you in it. Yeah, while recognizing that it's scary and it's painful, but it's there for a good reason. And it's there for an opportunity, like you're saying, to, <coughs> to have a healing connection with somebody else. Because really, the research is definitely showing us that trauma is not about events. It's about who's with us before, during, and after the event. That's profound, isn't it? Really profound. And there's some really excellent research about this kind of thing. I mean, it isn't just somebody's idea. There's research with uh, child soldiers in Nepal about this and how they're welcomed home after being out there in a war and killing people. And if they're embraced, they don't show any signs of PTSD. There's rituals of reincorporation with peers and elders and family. If they go back instead into an, into a, uh, an environment where there's shame and scorn and that kind of thing, they invariably develop PTSD. Remarkable. It is. And, you know, from an anthropological perspective, too, looking at other cultures, I was reading something similar about this. Why before going on a hunt, some cultures have, you know, dancing and togetherness before and after um, mm -hmm. and, and how um, that could could be, you know, that, that as, as human beings, we've somehow figured out, even without the science, that these things are helpful for us. Yeah, I think all the science does is illuminate what's always been true, but not always obvious to us. Yeah. You know, especially in cultures that are more cut off from the body and the heart, then we don't have as much access to these natural processes, and we try to think our way into it, and it's, we don't come up with answers that are very helpful a lot of the time from that viewpoint. Yeah. But if we listen to the, to, the, to the rhythms and all of that of the body, because think about that. If you go out on the hunt feeling embraced by your community, you're going to be able much more easily to attend and intuitively follow where you need to go. And then you also know that when you come home, you'll be welcomed. Yeah. It's yeah. an embracing kind of thing that is, is so important. And of course, I come from the era when our, our, our boys were coming back from Vietnam. And the way they were greeted at home, so many of them, was a tragedy as great as the war. You know, there was not welcome for so many of them. And they don't come back from that. Yeah, it's just an insult to injury. Yeah, yep, it's a second trauma. So. And they didn't come back. We, we know how many are, you know, have suffered. Yes, and continue to now. It's, it's just... Um, but we're learning and we're trying to do it differently and better now. And, and poor just work has a lot to do with that. And the Gilchrist and others that are pointing a way for us to understand things differently. Mm -hmm. You know, another thing that we were talking about a, a bit was the idea of understanding oneself. And um, I mentioned the idea in attachment theory of having a coherent autobiographical narrative and a narrative of our life and then you expanded upon that in terms of you know really needing to have a 
beyond a narrative, like an embodied experience. And I, I, I would like you to talk more about that. Could you talk, expand on that a little bit? Yeah, we do hear a lot about coherent autobiographical narrative, and it is important at, at one level. But what precedes the, the worded narrative is a change in the felt sense. So we have both a felt sense and a behavioral narrative that then sometimes, maybe even often, goes into a worded narrative. But we can, I, I've known people that can talk very coherently about their life experience, but you feel a hollowness underneath it because they're not connected to the actual experience. They understand it, they have compassion for all the people in the narrative and all of that kind of thing, but they haven't dealt with the, the, the deep way the body holds the memories. And so having, building a coherent narrative begins with get, really getting in touch with that, being accompanied, being held in ways that provide what, what we've always needed but wasn't there at the time of the experience. Then our perceptions change, our bodily felt sense changes, our behaviors change because we're now in a more healed state. And then sometimes that comes all the way into a, a worded narrative and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, one of the things McGilchrist talks about is anything that's implicit is never going to be fully captured in language. That's always a limitation, that the implicit world is so vast and so malleable and so rich, like a poem, that there's no way to capture all of it just in a worded narrative that explains it. So I'm not saying that isn't valuable. It is valuable. It is valuable to hold our story, but when it's both of them together, there's a wholeness to that that really translates to other people of feeling a kind of solidity in us. Mm-hmm. This is particularly interesting to me because of my work with the adult attachment interview and the coding system being, uh, uh, well, there's lots of scales, but coherence is such a big one and how one actually linguistically speaks about their past and, and all of that. So that's a particular area of interest for me thinking about, about that piece. So. Well, it's very interesting to me too, because I wonder if, I've always wondered if the results would have been any different if instead of looking at the coding, one actually also listened to the tone of voice of people or saw them too. You know, if there was a video and an audio, it's a really interesting question for me. I mean, I think Mary Main's work is unbelievably valuable, especially in pointing the way how our attachment affects the attachment of our kids. It's just so valuable. But I do wonder with what we know now about the non the non fully verbal aspects of language, how I wonder I just wonder what would happen. And I ask this because when I was when I was fortunate enough to be in Dan Siegel's study group for a period of time, we listened to a, a, a an AAI. And it was and and you could hear, even though she was and she had scored secure. But what he was pointing out was that as we listened to it, you could hear the parts of her narrative where she was just telling the story but wasn't connected emotionally to it. And then the parts where it was a rich story where you could feel her embodied presence. And his suspicion was that perhaps those parts where she was talking about things that were really painful were unhealed and may have been concealing pockets of disorganized attachment. But where she knew the story but hadn't touch those places. Anyway, it was, a, it was an interesting reflection, with, which in no way diminishes Mary Main's work at all. Yeah, yeah, uh, it is interesting because, um, I mean, 
Well, the adult attachment interview, let me talk through this here and think through this for myself, is designed <laughs> to stress the adult the way the strange situation would stress the baby to allow patterns of defenses and ways of managing to come out. So I'm wondering, um, and, and obviously Dan Siegel has been trained by Mary Main and uses the AI also, but I'm wondering if under stress, um, the idea would be the way the person speaks about the experience when they're stressed, they do speak about it differently, even in the language, not just in the in, in the affect or whatever you're hearing in there. So, so maybe it's kind of the same, you know, maybe the language does change. I don't know. That's, that's very interesting to think about. I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, it's really, it, I've always wondered what, because it says about 87% of the time that, that the attachment is passes to the child. I've always been curious about the other 13%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what happens there? Here. So anyway, it's just, it, it, it's, I think as we, as one of the things that relational neuroscience really is giving us, it's giving us back our bodies and it's giving us back our implicit world. And it's giving us back this sense that, of how important it is to consider not only what happens in the left hemisphere in terms of narrative, but what's happening in the right hemisphere as well. You know, and that, yeah, yeah. And that makes me think of another thing related to the AAI and how Mary Main says um, the AAI surprises the unconscious. And, um, and what, how do you see implicit and explicit memory being the same or different than conscious and unconscious memory? No, it's implicit memory being certainly remains out of awareness a lot of the time, even while it's shaping everything we do. Yes. However, it isn't stay that way. I mean, one of the things that happens in therapy, if you're working in a deep kind of way, is that the is implicit patterns begin to be known. They begin to become into conscious awareness. And what's helpful about that for people as they move down the road in therapy, instead of just being moved around by this implicit, they can feel the movement and they can begin to have a part of themselves consciously can reflect on oh, this is an implicit arising right now. This isn't about the present moment. You know, like every time I see this person, my, my belly tightens, you know, that I recognize now that that's, this is reminding me of something old in the past when my belly tightens that way. Mm -hmm. So it, becomes, it doesn't remain out of awareness. And so I don't think we can just call it the unconscious because again, the whole, the whole process is implicit becoming into awareness. It doesn't become explicit because that would mean it has a timestamp on it and feels past. Implicit memory always feels like the present. But we can become aware of what's happening in the present and what it means. And so it moves back and forth between being unconscious and conscious and is an important aspect of healing. Well, and now you have me thinking so much about language because what I was thinking was, that way we can not be driven by the unconscious or implicit. We can self-correct. Well, now I don't like that term anymore. <laughs> I don't think I want to say that anymore. Because I, if my belly tightens and I recognize this is an old thing, it doesn't make my belly relax. It means attend to me. I mean, what right. it does. I attend to this implicit place that's holding this tension from the past, right. but I need to just act on it in the present in the same way. 
But it isn't about correcting a thought or something. It's about, oh, this is my invitation to be with this tight belly that's reminding me of these times when I was frightened as a child. Can I go be with that child and bring her a new experience? I, I, I think about it that way because when I work with parents and children and parents are in certain patterns with their children related to their own history and they're very unaware that they're doing it and then they begin to become aware um, of, wait, I'm doing that when this comes up in me. And so then they can have like a pause and choose to do the behavior differently. So that's... Sometimes they can, but if the implicit is really activated because there's a lot of stress, they can't. And this is That's what right. we begin to discover. We, when I had a, an agency in California for 17 years, one of the things we began to realize was teaching parents skills without helping them with the deeper stuff meant that they could do it when things were calm. But right. when they, they went right back because the, yes. the implicit world would be touched and awakened. And once it gets moving, it moves 100 times faster than conscious thought. I agree with you like 500%. I mean, that, that is really what um, gave me my whole interest in the adult attachment interview is because here are parents that want to make changes. We know the changes that would be helpful, but for some reason they can't. And, and I became very curious about why that would be very well-intentioned, kind, wonderful people, um, but something's holding them back. So, yeah. Well, then they're working with that. So we began to incorporate that doing some attachment work with these parents as part of the parenting stuff that we were doing with them while we were seeing their kids. Yes. And they began to then not feel ashamed because they couldn't do it, but developed some compassion for themselves. And then out of that place, healing could happen. Because when they have repeated failures, it increases the shame to the point where that's disabling. So it's not helpful to give people just techniques that, that fall away when they're under stress, because now you have a whole additional layer of like, I'm just a screw up, you know, I'm just terrible. Well, but, and in general, that's kind of what we predominantly do. So we really need to be thinking about this. Yes. Hard yeah. and careful. Whenever I would give somebody, a, some, they say couples come in and they want this technique or that technique, and I don't work that way, but they need something to go home with. So I would say, so let's set out this plan, and let's know that if it doesn't work, that is probably even more valuable information than if it does work. So then they can come in not feeling ashamed and go, you know, we did it for two days. And on the third day, we did this, this, and this. I'd say, great, that's the place we want to enter. That's the place where the pain is. Let's be there. Yeah, yeah. So if we can, we can offer things, but we can offer it in a way that the expectation isn't, I just automatically am going to somehow be able to do this differently from now on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's so. a... Yeah, very, very nice way to kind of wind this down and increasing our awareness of that. You know, when we give these prescribed things, we really could be exacerbating the situation if we're setting folks up for failure, so to speak, or, or more shaming. Uh, my, my mind is going to the child welfare system and having worked in that and how we work with biological parents and the, I'll shut that down. We don't have time to talk about that, but, um, but, but these things are important in those arenas, especially where there is so much stress. Yes. So much stress and so much pressure so that 
so that there's new trauma being layered on top of old things just because of the system. And it is something that's really worth looking at and that all these things you and I have talked about are really applicable to finding ways to change that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, for healing, the system itself is causing more trauma. It's not helpful. And, and sometimes for, for uh, the children as well as the parents. Oh, so, absolutely. And the workers. And the workers, everybody. Yes. Yeah, we don't we don't have a very long tenure for these people because they they're yeah it's such a burnout rate for that kind of work. A really but. positive note: we do know these things now, and there are going to be ways that this these new understandings can begin to move into systems and gradually shift them onto a healthier yes. footing, just by a few things like two things. Poor just says safety is the treatment. And connection is a biological imperative. If we just held on to those two things and understood the autonomic nervous system, so much could change in our world if those became priorities. So that's my hope is we have, we have this now and, and it's going to be kind of, what do they say? It takes 20 to 30 years for something new, like at the core of things to really enter the culture. Yes. So that's lovely that we get to we get to offer that regularly to people as a lived felt experience with us, and then they'll carry it to the next and to the next and to the next. And that's ripples beautiful. What a beautiful way to end this talk. And I know when this podcast comes out, everyone is going to be like, "She's amazing! How do we get more information? How do we do her course and all of that?" So the only other thing I was going to say is, you know, asking people how they can find you, where you're speaking, your immersion courses and your books and all of that. Well, thank you, Karen. It's been a real pleasure to be here. It's, it feels like we come from really common, common threads, which is lovely. Yeah. Um, my website is probably, our website is nurturingtheheart.org. Okay. It's probably the best place. It has, I, I will be speaking in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Arkansas, uh, and in uh, Australia, actually, this coming year. And then it also has all of our classes and everything on there and ways to contact us. So, that, and there's also things about the books. And anyway, and you can the, just. And, and the immersion course people would come to Vancouver for yeah. a, a, a certain number of times, and then there's the in between. Right, and we are full for this year and almost full for 2020. So if anybody's interested, now would be the time to look. I think we have about eight places left in for next for 2020. So. Okay, all right. So listeners, uh, if you want to do that, get on that. Uh, okay, so well, um, and then your books, I assume Amazon or wherever people buy books. And, Books, yes. Yeah, so, well, thank you very much for sharing the wealth of wisdom that you have and your heart for this work. It's, it's really, really been inspiring, and I appreciate the time with you. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that you do the podcast, too. It's such a lovely way to reach out and let people have some things to ponder and all that. So yes, thank yes. Well, thank you, and, and goodbye for now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at www.theknowledgecenteratchadock.com 
or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is part two in a two-part series with Bonnie Badenoch, so be sure to go back and check out part one if you missed it. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.